Hello and welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This is episode 7, The Abrahamic Covenant. I'm so grateful to be with you today, and I just want to make a quick mention of our bumper music. It was written specifically for us here at Gospel Doctrine by a very talented composer, Kendra Lowe. For those of you who are wondering, it's an arrangement of the hymn, As I Search the Holy Scriptures. And when I asked Kendra to do that arrangement, I chose that hymn very specifically because of the wonderful meaning it has not only for what we're trying to accomplish on this podcast, but for the significance that it has in our daily lives. I just want to read as the start of our podcast today, I want to read the words to that hymn. As I search the Holy Scriptures, loving Father of mankind, may my heart be blessed with wisdom and may knowledge fill my mind. As I search the Holy Scriptures, touch my spirit, Lord, I pray. May life's mysteries be unfolded as I study day by day. May thy mercy be revealed, soothe my troubled heart and spirit. May my unseen wounds be healed, help me ponder and obey. In thy word is life eternal, may thy light show me the way. And because I don't consider it necessarily appropriate to begin the podcast with a prayer, I thought I'd read the words to that hymn, seeing as how the song of the righteous is a prayer unto God. And this prayer is especially appropriate. I'm grateful to be recording this on the Sabbath. I usually have it as my goal to record one week earlier than I'm going to release so that I have the week to do my edits. But this week I didn't get around to it, so I'm recording in what we called in Portuguese the madrugada, which is the wee hours of the morning. Nevertheless, it's the Sabbath, and I'm grateful for the Sabbath. I'm grateful for the spirit that attends the Sabbath, and knowing that in just a few hours I'll be partaking of the sacrament. And from the statistics that I'm able to gather, which are pretty minimal, it looks like most of you are listening to this podcast on the Sabbath. And if that's the case for you, then I wish you a wonderful Sabbath, or as they say in Israel, Shabbat Shalom. And on that note, We have a message from a listener this week. This comes from Seneca in Provo. Seneca writes, I'm in the primary presidency, so I don't get to attend Sunday school. This is filling that gap that I need in my life. Speaking of our podcast. So welcome, Seneca. Thanks for listening. And I should tell you, I also am in that category. My calling is teaching Sunday school to the youth. So I don't get to go to gospel doctrine class, much less ever teach a gospel doctrine lesson. I try to include some of the topics that I have in my podcasts in my lessons, but those lessons are carefully prescribed for the youth and they're a little bit simplified because the youth haven't had as much exposure to the scriptures. So this is filling that gap in my life as well. And I'm grateful for you listening, all of you who may feel the same way. And I ask for your prayers as I broadcast today, and I've been meaning to bring this up for a while, but this is an interesting idea I had. And in my opinion, it bears thinking about, which is, do any of you listening think that if you were to pray for me to have the Spirit while I'm broadcasting or recording, that God is incapable of answering that prayer in the past? And the more I think about this, the more I realize I don't have a single reason in the world to doubt that he can do that. It's a relatively new podcast, but I've already made reference several times to the fact that God lives outside of time. That's going to be a recurring theme. And as part of that, when you pray, God can receive the prayer and apply it in whatever time frame is appropriate, as long as your faith is there. It's a little bit of a philosophical question, kind of like Schrodinger's cat. 
which is a famous thought experiment in which the philosopher put, puts a cat in a box, a hypothetical cat in a box, and then introduces some sort of poison into the box, which has a 50-50 chance of killing the cat. And then thought experiment question is, before you open the door of that box, is the cat really dead? The cat is in this state between alive and dead. So what I'd like to offer you is Schrodinger's cat in reverse. Before you listen to the podcast, you have no way of knowing if your prayer hasn't been answered. So you might as well offer it and I'm sure God will apply it and I would be grateful to receive it. And I'm certainly praying that the spirit will speak to you as today we discuss the covenant of Abraham, or as I like to call it, the covenant of Abraham and Sarah, because much like the fall of Adam and Eve, even though the credit, as it were, or the notoriety or the naming rights were given to the man in the equation, the principles involved and the blessings involved depend equally on the prophet and his wife. That was the case in the fall, and that is certainly the case in the Abrahamic covenant. As a little bit of introduction, I'd like to talk first about who was Abraham. And to do that, I'll go back a little bit and say, first of all, do all of you know what the Old Testament, the words the Old Testament actually mean? The word testament is simply another way of saying covenant. So the Old Testament means the Old Covenant. And it's called that in contrast to the New Testament. Jews don't call the Old Testament the Old Testament. They call it the Torah. They call it the Tanakh, which is an acronym, T-N-K. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, which is the law, the, the prophets, and the writings. And so they divide what we know as the Old Testament into the five books of Moses and then several prophetic books and then writings, which are considered more poetic or literary in nature. And they have a hierarchy on how much authority they give to the different books in those categories. But they don't refer to what we know as the Old Testament as the Old Testament. That is a Christian construct made to distinguish the scriptures that deal specifically with Christ and his apostles from the scriptures that came before that. And that is because Judaism has what I think is a unique distinction among the major religions of the world as being considered by another major religion of the world as having been true at one point. And so Christianity, all Christians, mainstream Christianity, believes that Judaism was true during the time of Adam all the way through Moses and up to the time of Jesus. Jesus was a Jew, as we know. And so Christians named their scriptures the New Testament to say, we have more scriptures, but the scriptures that the Jews believe in are also true. So whenever you're speaking to a Jew, if you speak of the Old Testament, of course, they'll know what you mean, but that's not what they call it among themselves, which is a fun digression, but let's get back to the topic the testament in Old Testament is the covenant. And when we talk about the Old Testament, the covenant we're referring to is the covenant that God makes with Abraham that we'll discuss in this lesson in the book of Genesis. Now, Jews at the time of Jesus and even to today, they considered themselves the children of Abraham. Now, it's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, Abraham, who is, I think, a seventh great grandson of Eber, is the first to actually be called Hebrew, which is the ethnonym of Eber's descendants. So the Hebrews are the descendants from a biblical perspective of Abraham. And Christ makes reference to this in the New Testament when he tells the Pharisees that you're all so concerned with your lineage, your genealogy, that you can trace back to Abraham, which tells us that the Jews at that time placed a great deal of emphasis on their genealogies and, and tracing that lineage. And Jesus's point was 
everyone is a descendant of Abraham, that God can raise, he used a metaphor, God can raise from these stones descendants of Abraham. So Abraham was the father of what came to be known as the Hebrew nation. And perhaps the best known story of Abraham is that he's a prophet who has to wait many years of his life until he's quite an old man before he has a child. And his son, his progeny, was promised to him in the Abrahamic covenant. And then he had to wait a long time for that promise to be fulfilled. And at some point after his son Isaac was born, the fulfillment of that promise, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac in the way that ancient Hebrew prophets were commanded to sacrifice animals. So obviously, as a man having a boy that was that precious, the fulfillment of promise, his only son of the covenant, Abraham was extremely torn, but he was so obedient to God that he obeyed and he moved forward with plans to perform that sacrifice. That particular story is not the subject of our lesson today. We'll discuss it next week. However, that is who Abraham was. And I'll talk about exactly what happened when Abraham decided to sacrifice his son Isaac next time. But at the beginning of our lesson, we learn a little bit more about Abraham. And that is one of the reasons why human sacrifice would have been so disgusting to him. The book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price opens with the episode of Abraham being the target of human sacrifice himself by his own father. Now, Abraham's father, Terah, T-E-R-A-H, was an idolatrous man and worshipped the heathen gods that were prevalent at that place and time. And Abraham makes mention of all of them, among them being the god of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So there was a Pharaoh worship cult in the land of Ur, and that's a city that hasn't been definitively located by archaeologists. In fact, I've seen candidates for Ur everywhere from Iraq all the way up to Turkey, through Syria, all across the Middle East. But the point is the city of Ur lies outside of the boundaries of what today is known as Israel. And so the story of Abraham is the story of a man who's called from an idolatrous nation out of a heathen family, a wicked society, to move to the land of Israel and given it as a promise. So that's the covenant of Abraham. Abraham is given specific promises, among them a promised land and posterity that would fill the whole earth. In fact, he's told that if you would number, if you could number the dust of the earth, that would be the number of your descendants. And then he's given the promise of a priesthood and told that in thy name shall all the children of the earth be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And that's exactly what Abraham did. When he was called to leave his society, he picked up his family and he began to move. And it took him a couple of stops before he finally made it to Israel. But eventually he settled in a place that is called Bethel, and we still know where Bethel is today, and built there the first tabernacle, as we might call it, a temple, a place to meet God that was made out of a tent. At least the first temple that we have record of, we can presume that Adam built one, that Enoch built one, but we don't know for sure. It's not mentioned specifically. It's mentioned that they went to a mountain apart or they found a place to pray where God visited them. And those places have the function of temples. But what Abraham built in Bethel was the first one we have record of. The scriptural story of Abraham begins in the book of Abraham, chapter one. And verse two is so poetic and beautiful that it bears reading. He says, And finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. And by greater, he's referring to the situation that prevails in the land he comes from. Finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers. 
One more aside here. When Abraham speaks of the fathers, he's talking about the patriarchs from Adam down to Melchizedek. And when he speaks of my fathers, he's speaking of his immediate ancestors, his father and perhaps grandfather and others, the wicked ones. And from, as we know, from Adam to Noah is 10 generations. But interestingly, from Noah to Abraham is 10 generations. And we mentioned last week, but this is a a common gospel assumption and it's been discussed in many places. I don't know that we need to go into it in the podcast, but the son of Noah, known as Shem, is often identified in LDS thought with the prophet Melchizedek. And though it's not necessary to believe that, to understand this story, or even to believe this story, that is my own personal opinion, which is relevant because Melchizedek is Abraham's direct teacher. And we learn in the Doctrine and Covenants that Melchizedek is the one who ordained Abraham to the priesthood. So continuing again, I'll just start the verse over. Finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereinto I should be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness and to possess a greater knowledge and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, and desiring to receive instructions And to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. So Abraham tells the story of how he desired first. And I have made lists before just to remind me of all the many things that he desired. So I'll give you a partial list here. First of all, what Abraham wanted was the rights of the fathers, the priesthood. He wanted knowledge. He wanted to be a father of nations, a prince of peace. And he wanted instructions. He wanted to receive instructions. And he wanted to keep the commandments. And as we talk about all the blessings, as we go on with the lesson, as we talk about all the blessings that Abraham received, one of the things that I like to keep in mind is that if we want to receive these blessings, we have to desire the things that he desired. And these are some really ambitious desires, some of them. To be a father of nations, to be a prince of peace. What does that even mean? We'll discuss what it means to be a prince of peace but to have greater knowledge and to receive instructions directly from God. Abraham had some very powerful desires that would have required a lot of faith to hold. And when I read that verse, I think of the beatitude that Christ said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled, or as it says in the Joseph Smith translation, for they will be filled with the Holy Ghost. So Abraham desired these things, and we don't know exactly how long. But there are a lot of sources that are non-scriptural that give us some indication of what Abraham went through. And they paint a picture of a young man who spent an incredibly long time seeking God. In fact, the book of Jubilees records that Abraham's first revelation of God was when he was 14 years old. And that's not the only parallel between Abraham and the young Joseph Smith, but there are a lot of parallels in this story between Abraham and Joseph Smith and many other prophets in the scriptures because of the things they went through. But first of all, Abraham, from the time he was a young man, received a revelation from God that this is what you should want. He was already a follower of righteousness, and though he was surrounded by a wicked family and a wicked nation, he himself kept himself unspotted from their sins And not only from their sins of commission, but their sins of belief. To him, the world was a testament of the existence of God. The creations of God were proof to him that God existed. And he went from there and became what some traditional Jewish sources describe as a man filled with loving kindness. So the Spirit of God was very active in Abraham's heart from the time he was a child. 
But those Jewish sources also describe Sarah as having loving kindness, and they describe Abraham and Sarah as being equals in every respect. And we have reason to believe that these two grew up together. In fact, it was quite common for people in that culture. We don't know exactly what nation that Abraham lived in, because even though it was called Ur of the Chaldees or the Chaldean civilization, we can't locate Abraham specifically to a place and time. But in the ancient Near East, it's quite common for people to marry their relatives. And so Abraham and Sarah were probably cousins. And so they grew up together. They loved each other from an early age. And Abraham and Sarah were both paragons of virtue in a wicked society. And that gives a little bit of context to this second verse of the book of Abraham, where he talks about all the desires he had for righteousness. Abraham grew up a righteous young man. And later on, we read in verse 31 that the records of the fathers, even the patriarchs concerning the right of the priesthood, the Lord my God preserved in mine own hands. In other words, similarly to what happened with Joseph Smith, how he had a miraculous revelation of scripture. He had the golden plates committed into his care by an angel. And similar to what happened with Lehi and Nephi, how they took the brass plates with them when they left their own wicked nation. Abraham seems to have been given a record of the people of God of his time, which we can presume because it would have been so recent, went all the way back to Adam. And the only way he would have had a record of that is if Noah carried it on the ark and preserved it in that way. So Abraham, or as he was known at the beginning of his life, Abram, which means exalted father, And I'll just refer to him as Abraham for the purposes of this lesson, although he wasn't known with that name, which means father of a multitude, until his crowning vision, which happened in the land of Haran, which we'll talk about. But I'll refer to him as Abraham. But Abraham, before he left Ur, was given these incredible scriptures, and he studied them, and Sarah studied them. And they were very knowledgeable in the scriptures, and it was more than just a scriptural account of prophets and teachings and events, it seems to have also had some sort of astronomical record and a more detailed account of the creations of God, whether it was of this earth alone or whether it beyond that into the heavens, we don't know. One of the most interesting things about the story of Abraham is the way that he's called out of his society. He's called to first preach and then to suffer and be persecuted and then to come out of his society and all of the parallels we can find for that in the scriptures. Perhaps the most obvious is the story of Lehi and his family. And some of the parallels that exist are, first, he's persecuted and he's going to be killed. God gives him a promise of a new land, and he says, your family will be saved. And then they bring their scriptures with them and come out. But a similar thing also happened to Joseph Smith. He was called as a prophet from a young age, was given a book of scripture that was preserved by the power of God, And then he was persecuted and called to come out of the society he was in. But in fact, we read in the book of Moses that this happened earlier to Adam and several of the early patriarchs. They had to leave their original land just outside the Garden of Eden because of the wickedness of their posterity. They would have been killed. And one generation after Lehi left Jerusalem, Nephi had to take his family and everyone who would follow him and leave the land of their first inheritance or the land of Nephi or Laman and Lemuel would have killed them. And they took the brass plates with them and they took the priesthood with them. And of course, the most notable example of an exodus is the exodus itself. So throughout the ages of the gospel on the earth, time and again, the people of God are called to come out of the wicked nation and bring their priesthood with them, bring their blessings with them, 
bring their scriptures with them, and settle into a land of promise. Now here's something we can tell about the modern day by that, which is that the people of God now are scattered into every nation and the world is full. There is no unexplored area of the world for the people of God to settle into. And so that commandment can never be issued again. God's people can never again be called to leave their wicked society and settle into a new place. And that's how we know this is the end of days. If it should ever happen again that the world becomes so wicked that they would do to a believer what they were going to do to Abraham, what they were going to do to the believers of Christ before the first coming, as we read in the book of Helaman, where the night before Christ was born, if that sign hadn't been given, they would have been killed. When we see people persecuted for believing in Christ unto the danger of their lives, and there are many places where this is happening right now, mostly in the Middle East, then we can know that the end is near and there's nowhere for us to go. There's nowhere for believers in Christ to separate themselves and to found a new nation unless we go to Antarctica, which, which I doubt would fit the plans of God. So it's just fascinating to see that already by the time of Abraham, who's 20 generations down from Adam, there had already been so many twists and turns in the history of the people of God and just like the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, wouldn't it be fascinating to have those lost scriptures that Abraham refers to that contain not only the sacred history of his people, but an account of the stars and the planets and the heavens? <clears throat> well, let's return to Abraham at Ur, touched by the Spirit of God at a young age, studying the scriptures, and for all we know, he may have read a verse similar to James 1 verse 5, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He probably had similar concerns to those of Joseph Smith, which were, how can I know what's true? These words, this, this, these scriptures that I have seem to be telling me that God exists and he's real, yet all I see around me is wickedness. And he was given a vision, and then he was pressured to renounce that vision. He was pressured to be wicked. He was pressured to adopt the religion and the mores of the people around him. And we know from other societies in which human sacrifice was common that their most prized victims were generally those who believed that human sacrifice was wrong. And that was the case with Abraham. In fact, his father was, if not one of the priests, at least one of the high-level adherents of this paganistic religion. And he delivered Abraham to be sacrificed. And just before Abraham was to be killed, the priest of Elkanah, as he's described, had offered up on the same altar a child and then three virgins who were killed because they wouldn't renounce their own testimony of Christ. So there were other righteous people in the society of Abraham, but they were systematically being destroyed and targeted and victimized. And it's hard for us to imagine today the kind of courage that that would take to be strapped onto an altar and to have a knife held at your throat and to be threatened with death if you won't recant your beliefs. And I'm sure we would all of us like to be able to say that we would remain faithful to our beliefs under such a circumstance. But I would like even more never to have to find out because that seems like a terrible situation. And I'm grateful that we live in a free society. And that's what Abraham was commanded to seek out. And when Abraham was tied down on this altar, he prays to God to be saved. And at that time, God strikes the priest of Elkanah down that he dies. And God miraculously saves Abraham from a death through human sacrifice. And from this experience, he comes to profoundly hate the practice, which is why, as we'll discuss next week, why it would have been so distasteful to him to receive this commandment of God. And we know from 
the second verse of Abraham chapter 1, that he wants to keep the commandments. But we also know from this story how much he hated human sacrifice. And when Abraham is saved from being sacrificed, at that very moment, God tells him he's going to lead him away into another land. And then he says, this is in Abraham 1.18, Behold, I will lead thee by my hand. I will take thee to put upon thee my name. Even the priesthood of thy father and my power shall be over thee. As it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. And this is the first indication we have that the covenant of Abraham, and this is sort of unique to LDS doctrine, the covenant of Abraham was not just a covenant to Abraham, but it was a repeated covenant. And that's not a concept that we find in the book of Genesis. We have to go to Abraham for that. And again, in the book of Moses, we can read that God gave a similar covenant to Enoch. And God gave a similar covenant to Noah. And specifically, that covenant was that through thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, or all people of the earth be blessed. And there are a couple of different interpretations to that, but this is a key part of the Abrahamic or the Abraham and Saraic covenant, which is that through their lineage would come a lot of blessings for the inhabitants of the earth. And one interpretation of that is simply that they would have the righteous progeny who would have the covenants of God. And Abraham and Sarah had already been an example of this. They were missionaries teaching salvation to everyone they came in contact with. But there's another fulfillment of that, and it was specifically given to Enoch. He was shown the day of Christ. And Abraham, Noah, and Enoch, they all had this covenant that through their lineage would come the Savior of the world. And that is the more literal fulfillment. And quite often in the Old Testament, when it talks about seed, the prophets are specifically talking about Christ. And I'm reminded of one of the most famous chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, when Isaiah says, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And the seed of the prophets, the seed of the ancient prophets was Christ. And the seed of Christ is everyone that partakes of his salvation. And so in one sense, Abraham is told you will have earthly or physical progeny that will be as numberless as the dust of the earth. But that same promise has a more specific fulfillment, which is not only will the followers of the gospel come from your line, but also Christ will come from your line. And Christ himself did more for humanity than everyone else put together. The rest of us are just trying to make the blessings of Christ accessible to as many as we can. But Christ is the source of all of those blessings. Now, why was Abraham's society so wicked? Interestingly enough, if you turn to the end of your Bible and you read in the Joseph Smith translation in Genesis 14, for several verses it talks about the powers and the rights associated with the priesthood that Abraham was desiring. And then it talks about Melchizedek, and it says in verse 33, And now Melchizedek was a priest of this order. Therefore he obtained peace in Salem and was called the Prince of Peace. And his people wrought righteousness and obtained heaven and sought for the city of Enoch, which God had before taken, separating it from the earth, having reserved it unto the latter days or end of the world. So Melchizedek was in the process of trying to gain access to the city of Enoch, which if Melchizedek was Shem, he would have had reason to perhaps even visit before it was taken up into heaven before the flood, since Shem was alive before the flood. So Shem is called to survive the flood and then be a prince of peace. Again, there's that phrase that is one of the desires of Abraham. He's called to be a prince of peace, and he has a whole following. He has the people of Melchizedek. 
So we know that Melchizedek was seeking the city of Enoch, and we don't have a record of whether he found it, but what if he did? And we don't have a scriptural record of exactly when in relation to the flood the city of Enoch was taken up, but we do know, this is, and this is interesting, that Methuselah was the longest living person in the Old Testament, and they all lived extremely long lives at that early time. And Methuselah died the year of the flood, or at least was his life ended the year of the flood. And so some people think, well, maybe the flood was delayed until Methuselah was taken up and perhaps Methuselah was in the city of Enoch. And so a lot of people think, okay, the, the flood was delayed until God finally, his plans had matured and he took the city of Enoch unto himself and then destroyed everyone else. And it's interesting to think that perhaps Melchizedek had a similar experience where for centuries or generations, he was preaching and bringing people into his own city, the city of Salem or peace, and that he became a prince of peace by doing this. And they were seeking the city of Enoch. And what if they found it? And when they found it, they would have left behind only a small remnant of believers. They would have left behind just Abraham. But if in fact he was pulled into the city of Enoch, or perhaps whether he died, before he left, Melchizedek met with Abraham. And perhaps he met with him several times, but Abraham knew enough about the gospel to desire all the things that Melchizedek had. He desired to be specifically a prince of peace and to have the rights of the fathers. And if you want to know what the rights of the fathers are, then you can read in that Joseph Smith translation, Genesis chapter 14, the first several verses of that talk about all of the powers that are associated with the Melchizedek priesthood. And as just a couple of examples Everyone being ordained after this order and calling should have power by faith to break up mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, and many other things. And Abraham would have had access to the scriptures that showed him that Enoch had done many of these things. And so he desired to have those rights, but we don't have an indication that what he wanted was the power. What he wanted was to be a man of greater righteousness and to have knowledge and have instruction from God. And then it says at the end, and to keep the commandments. In any case, when Melchizedek met with Abraham, we read in verse 37, he lifted up his voice and he blessed Abram, being the high priest and the keeper of the storehouse of God, him whom God hath appointed to receive tithes for the poor. Wherefore Abram paid unto him tithes of all that he had, of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than that which he had need. So I think it's safe to assume that Melchizedek would have baptized Abram. And here we read the account of him giving him what would be a patriarchal blessing. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, we read specifically that Melchizedek was the one to give the priesthood to Abraham. And there might have been other ordinances that Melchizedek performed that we don't read of. Specifically, he might have been the one to marry Abraham and Sarah. So the blessings that Abraham received in accordance with the gospel were everything that we would receive today. And all these things he received in his original home in Ur. But obviously, conditions there were not ideal for living the gospel. And he's commanded to leave. So very soon in the book of Abraham, he leaves the land of Ur. And he takes a few family with him. And they settle in a place called Haran, H-A-R-A-N. And there they live for some time. And we don't have as much detailing this part of their lives as we have about their life before and after. However, from non-scriptural sources, there are indications that during this time, Abraham and Sarah were entertaining 
all of the people, all of the natives that they could and all of the travelers that they could, and that their home was a place of renowned hospitality and that Abraham would entertain the men and Sarah would entertain the women. And what they were doing specifically was preaching the gospel. So Abraham and Sarah considered this call to leave Ur as a mission call. They were on a mission and they went to the land of Haran and made many converts. And they knew from the beginning that that wasn't their final destination. God had shown Abraham where he was going to end up. And that wasn't it. So they took advantage of the time they were there to get as many converts to what we would today call Judaism as they could. And this would have been an earlier Judaism before Moses. And different in a number of ways. Specifically, Abraham had from Melchizedek the high priesthood. And what Moses had in his day was the Levitical or lower priesthood. So Abraham had the fullness of the gospel. He would have taught them about Christ. He would have been able to baptize them and perhaps provided other ordinances that we don't know of. And sometime after Abraham and Sarah had moved to Haran, Abraham receives what we know today as the Abrahamic covenant. And this wasn't a single event. The Abrahamic covenant was given to Abraham over the course of a series of revelations. Some of them began in Ur, but but perhaps the most dramatic of them happened in Haran. When Abraham's father follows him out of Ur and ends up in Haran with them, but then returns to his idolatry. And God says again to Abraham, the time has come for you to leave Haran because I have a new land to give you. And in verse six, we read, I have purpose to take thee away out of Haran and to make thee a minister to bear my name in a strange land, which I will give unto thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession when they hearken to my voice. And that when they hearken to my voice has echoes of the Book of Mormon promise, inasmuch as ye keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And in verse 9, God says, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee above measure and make thy name great among all nations. Thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, that in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. And I will bless them through thy name. For as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name and shall be accounted thy seed and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee that is thy priesthood and in thy seed that is thy priesthood. For I give unto thee a promise that this right shall continue in thee and thy seed after thee. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In other words, in thy seed and in thy priesthood shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Even with the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even of life eternal. And Abraham was given that promise, not because Abraham was so special, although he was, but because Christ was coming through his lineage. Salvation comes through Christ. So he's given two promises here regarding his seed. And one is that they will be missionaries. And another is that Christ will come from his lineage. And after receiving this revelation, Abraham says, Now, after the Lord had withdrawn from speaking to me and withdrawn his face from me, I said in my heart, Thy servant has sought thee earnestly. Now I have found thee. And if you want a way to quickly review the covenant of Abraham, you can read in Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. Skipping to verse 4, As for me, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. 
And this is when he renames him to Abraham and says, I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And later he says to, and this is in the same chapter, Genesis 17. He re, First he renames her to Sarah, and then he says, I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So the covenant of Abraham is repeated to Sarah. This is the covenant of Abraham and Sarah. And when you think of the covenant of Abraham, there are three parts to it. The promised land, a numerous and even innumerable posterity, and the blessings of the gospel for him and those who will come after him. And Abraham takes this covenant and leaves the land of Haran and finally makes his way into central, what would be today known as central Israel, and settles there and builds a temple in a place called Bethel. And here's a little Hebrew lesson. The word bet or beth if you see it in the scriptures, means house, and El is a shortage of Elohim, which means God. So Bethel, meaning the house of God, it was named after what Abraham built there, the temple. And and it's kind of fun to know the name Beth because of Bethlehem, which is Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. And anytime you see the word El, like as in Samuel or Daniel, you can know that the word God was put at the end of those names. Much like you can know when you see Yah or I-A-H or J-A-H at the, na- at the end of a name, you can know that Jehovah was put at the end of that name. So those are some simple Hebraisms that are fun to remember. But Bethel is probably the easiest Hebrew name to remember because it simply means house of God. Now with the rest of our time, what I'd like to do is talk about the significance of the Abrahamic covenant or the covenant of Abraham and Sarah. Why is it so meaningful for us today? The Jews, of course ascribe great meaning to it because that is the covenant whereby they became the chosen people of God. And the Jews don't consider themselves to be better than other people. They consider themselves to have a harder job. In fact, they think Gentiles can go to heaven if they just keep the seven laws of Noah, which are similar to the Ten Commandments. But they have a much simpler job But if you take on this greater responsibility, and if you take on this greater covenant of Abraham, then you have to keep all 613 commandments, or so they believe, that are found in the Torah. And that's an obligation that Jews take willingly upon themselves, and they take pride in being the chosen people of God, because God wants to show the world what it is to be obedient. Now, all of those beliefs are interesting, because as Latter-day Saints, we have similar beliefs. We think that we're not necessarily the only people who will be saved. Although eventually we believe people have to accept all of the truths that we will have to accept. But if, and here's the crucial difference, in this life they don't come to accept those covenants, they can come to accept them eventually. And I don't believe there's anything similar in Judaism, although I can't say that for certain. But here's the interesting application for Latter-day Saints. In Doctrine and Covenants 110, This is the section where Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are given visions in the newly constructed Kirtland Temple. And the first thing that happens is that God appears to them, but after that, several prophets appear, and one of them is Elias, who commits to Joseph and Oliver the gospel of Abraham. 
saying that in us, and we're in Doctrine and Covenants section 110, verse 12, saying that in us and our seed, all generations after us should be blessed. And 13, after this vision had closed, another great and glorious vision burst upon us. For Elijah the prophet, who was taken to heaven without tasting death, stood before us and said, Behold, the time has fully come, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. Therefore, the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands. Now, there's some misunderstanding about in verse 16. Now, there's some misunderstanding in verse 16 what this dispensation actually means. But it seems clear to me in reading this that when it says this, it's referring back to verse 12, when Elias commits the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham to them, and then Elijah comes and commits the keys of this dispensation to them. So just as the promise of the promise made to Enoch was repeated to Noah and then again to Abraham, that same promise was repeated in our day. And it has significance because these blessings and specifically the rights, what would what would be called in the book of Abraham, the rights of the fathers concerning the seed, those blessings are extended to us only conditionally. Just because God made this covenant with Abraham doesn't mean that every one of Abraham's descendants receives it automatically. If that were true, God wouldn't have explicitly repeated this covenant with Isaac and then again with Jacob. So God renewed this covenant several times in the Old Testament, but three generations in a row, he made the same covenant and then he repeated it again in our day. And there may be those listening who have received this covenant directly from God, but I suspect they're very few in number. Most of us, we haven't had God appear to us and say to us, in your name will all the nations of the earth be blessed. You're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be a father of a multitude, a mother of a multitude. You're going to be a prince of peace. But that is the promise extended to Abraham and renewed to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. So what does that mean? Let's say that you and I had the same desires that Abraham has. Let's say I wanted to be a prince of peace. Let's say I wanted to be a father of nations. Let's say I wanted to have greater knowledge. I wanted to have greater righteousness. I wanted to keep the commandments. And I wanted to receive the promises in return that Abraham had received. How would I do that? Well, again, in Doctrine and Covenants 110, Elijah says, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers in order that this might happen. The sealing power of parents to children is exactly the way in which the Abrahamic covenant is extended to the whole earth. And later on in what would become Doctrine and Covenants section 128, Joseph Smith wrote in a letter to the saints. He wrote, Let us present in his holy temple when it is finished a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. And he spoke of a chain, an unbroken chain, that would extend, would, would contain the entire human family and extend all the way back to Adam. And this is the vision of God for our earth, is that these covenants that were made with Adam, renewed with Enoch, with Noah, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and again with Joseph Smith, that this Abrahamic covenant would, would include everyone. And we would all have access to it through the ordinances of the temple and through the priesthood that we would all be made partakers in this covenant that Adam and Eve first created and that we have the fullest account of being given to Abraham and Sarah, that same covenant is extended to everyone who comes unto God. Now, this is how Abraham became a prince of peace. 
he created a following of people, not because he had political power, not because he had military power, but because he loved everyone, as it was, as we talked about earlier, he was a man of loving kindness, and so was his wife, a woman of loving kindness. They created a following of those who loved God. And by creating that following, they created a nation. Eventually, when God called Abraham to come out of Haran into the land of Canaan, they brought their followers with him. And these people followed them voluntarily. They came because they loved God and they loved Abraham and they believed he was a prophet. And that was accomplished through peace. That was the same thing that Enoch did. He created a city where people came into it and they were united in their righteousness. And that was the same thing that Melchizedek did. In the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 14, we read he created the city of Salem. And they were doing the same thing. They were trying to attain that city of Enoch. And he became a prince of peace. And it even says there he became the king of peace. So when we read that very daunting verse in the first chapter of Abraham, where he says all the desires he had, and probably the one that raises his eyebrows the most is, I wanted to be a prince of peace. That's because he saw an example of it in Melchizedek. And a prince of peace means you are an example of righteousness. That's what it means. You have people who look to you and see an example of the way the gospel should be lived. And that might be abstaining from sin. That might be great knowledge in the scriptures, but it certainly includes loving kindness. It certainly includes great faith and great humility. And it includes courage to testify, to undergo perhaps sacrifices on the behalf of God, and maybe even being asked to give up a beloved home, a beloved possession, Anything that makes you an example and you follow in the footsteps of Abraham or any of these prophets or any of these great examples from the scriptures, Abraham and Sarah, Adam and Eve, Enoch, Noah, where other people can see it and be inspired to see your good works and glorify God, you're becoming a prince or a princess of peace or a king or a queen of peace as Melchizedek became. What happens to us if we fail to come unto the What happens to us if we fail to come unto the Abrahamic covenant? What if we don't live up to it? What if we choose not to accept it? As I was preparing for this lesson, I was looking through some old notes of lessons I've done in the past, and I found one that I have no idea where it even goes in the scriptures, but it's just called simply covenants. And I pulled it out and I was looking through it and I thought it was very interesting. And I just compared the covenants that God has made with different people throughout scriptural history with the counterfeit covenants of Satan. And obviously Satan doesn't have power to make his covenants last beyond this life. And that's the real difference. So some of the examples that are relevant to our recent lessons are the covenant that Cain made with Satan and the covenant Abel made with God. On the one hand, Satan promised Cain that he would keep his sins secret and that he would gain certain earthly goods. And on the other hand, Abel, because he sacrificed with purity of heart and according to the commandments, Christ gave him the promise that he would pay the price of his sins and that he would have access to the presence of God. And interestingly enough, though Cain did receive Satan's promises for a time, his sins were not kept secret. He's one of the most notorious sinners in all human history. And the goods that he received of Abel, his flocks and herds, are all now dead and gone, and Cain is gone, whereas Abel's blessings continue unto this day. And again, we talked about the covenant of Enoch. And Enoch's promises that he received were, No man shall pierce thee. If you open your mouth, it will be filled. Your words will be justified by me, and you'll be a seer. And contrast that with the people Enoch was teaching, where he said to them, Why counsel ye yourselves? 
And then it shows, so Enoch was receiving the counsel of God and the people around him were counseling themselves. And that is exactly the status of people that are following an idolatrous religion is that they're counseling themselves and they're receiving the benefits of all of that counsel. And we can find out what those consequences are in Moses chapter six, verse 49. Behold, Satan hath come among the children of men and tempteth them to worship him. And men have become carnal, sensual, and devilish, and are shut out from the presence of God. So those are the two covenants that have to do with Enoch. With Noah, he is counseled to repent, to build an ark, to preach the gospel, to be righteous. And in Moses chapter 8, verse 21, we read, After they had heard them, they came up before him, saying, Behold, we are the sons of God. Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men, and are we not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? And our wives bear unto us children, and the same are mighty men, which are like unto men of old, men of great renown, and they hearken not unto the words of Noah. And in Moses chapter 8, verse 24, Moses tells them, Believe, and repent of your sins, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as our fathers. And ye shall receive the Holy Ghost, that ye may have all things made manifest. And if ye do not this, the floods will come in upon you. Nevertheless, they hearkened not. And so time after time, we're given examples of covenant keepers and those who make covenants with themselves or with Satan or who break covenants. And the result is always the same. And one more aspect of those covenants that I meant to bring up earlier is referred to in Abraham chapter 1 verse 3. When Abraham says he eventually did receive the priesthood, then he says, It was conferred upon me from the fathers. It came down from the fathers from the beginning of time. Yea, even from the beginning or before the foundation of the earth down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn or the first man who is Adam or first father through the fathers unto me. Which is a way of saying he was called to receive that covenant from before this life. And then again in this life, he received the covenant from God. And we read in Doctrine and Covenants section 132, verse 29, Abraham received all things whatsoever he received by revelation and commandment, by my word, saith the Lord, and hath entered into his exaltation and sitteth upon his throne. So Abraham's covenant was made before this world, continued in this world, and after this world. Whereas the covenants of Satan are, even though they might be for the entirety of our lives here on this world, that's as long as they can last. And most of the time their duration is much shorter. It can be counted in a few short years or even days or minutes. And on my little lesson plan for this covenants lesson that I made years ago, I have a note here that says, Covenants with Satan are the default. And the scripture I wrote was Moses chapter 6, verse 55. And the Lord spake unto Adam, saying, Inasmuch as thy children are conceived in sin, even so when they begin to grow up, sin conceiveth in their hearts. And they taste the bitter that they may know to prize the good. And it is given unto them to know good from evil, Wherefore they are agents unto themselves, and I have given unto you another law and commandment. Wherefore teach it unto your children that all men everywhere must repent. So if we aren't making covenants with God, we are by default making covenants with Satan or with ourselves. And it amounts to the same thing. They may not be as serious as the covenant that Cain made, but they're still a covenant to counsel ourselves, to substitute our wisdom for God's wisdom. And anytime we do that, we're in danger of the same penalty. We're on the same road, even though we may not be going as fast. That's why the scriptures say so often there is no other name under heaven 
whereby men may be saved. We really do need Christ. Every person who's ever born needs to make covenants with God and keep them. And that is the only way to happiness. And Satan would want to convince us that that's a violation of our free agency, but it's just the opposite. And so to return to talking specifically about Abraham's covenant, we continue in section 132. Here's further justification for the idea that we receive the blessings of Abraham through the sealing ordinances. Verse 30 says, Abraham received promises concerning his seed and of the fruit of his loins, from whose loins ye are, namely my servant Joseph, which were to continue so long as they were in the world and as touching Abraham and his seed out of the world, they should continue. Both in the world and out of the world should they continue as innumerable as the stars. Or if you were to count the sand upon the seashore, you could not number them. This promise is yours also because ye are of Abraham. And the promise was made unto Abraham, and by this law is the continuation of the works of the Father, wherein he glorifieth himself. Go ye therefore and do the works of Abraham. Enter ye into my law, and ye shall be saved. One final thought concerning the promise of Abraham, and it's in three parts. Abraham, again, was promised a land of promise. He was promised progeny, and he was promised the priesthood for his posterity, and through them that the earth should be blessed. There's an interesting parallel between those three promises and the curses that were made upon the earth when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Number one, they have to leave the garden. And Abraham was given the covenant that he would be led into a land of promise. Then Eve was told, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And Abraham was told, and Sarah was told, you will be the father and the mother of a great nation or of many nations. And finally, Adam was told, the earth shall be cursed for thy sake. And Abraham was told, In thy name shall all the people and the nations of the earth be blessed. And then God gives the key to the entire parallel. He says to Abraham specifically, And in thee that is thy priesthood, and in thy seed that is thy priesthood. And when he names thy seed, he's talking specifically about Christ. And he says, And in thy seed, which is thy priesthood. Meaning that Christ is the priesthood. Christ is the way through which all of the kindreds of the earth will be blessed. And this covenant, the new and the everlasting covenant of the gospel, is the way in which God will redeem us from the fall. So by making this covenant with Abraham, God, Jehovah, is testifying of Christ. He's saying, man lives in a fallen state, but there is a way that man can not only better himself, but bless all the peoples of the earth and bless the earth itself. And Enoch received that promise, and he made it a reality for an entire city. They were redeemed from the fall. So it's not just theoretical. It's not just that we can one day in the second coming be redeemed from the fall. It's that truly we can bring this redemption about every day by living the new and everlasting covenant, by coming unto the gospel, by attending the temple, by receiving baptism, by praying, by doing the works of Abraham, which were specifically desiring righteousness and keeping the commandments. Then the power of Christ is brought alive in your life. Hugh Nibley wrote, The saints have always worked and prayed for the day when God shall open the gates of paradise and shall remove the threatening sword against Adam, and he shall give to the saints to eat from the tree of life, and all the saints shall clothe themselves with joy. And the threatening sword against Adam, if you'll remember, was that cherubim and a flaming sword were placed to guard the way of the tree of life after the fall. And among the promises of the covenant of Abraham, is that we can undo those curses 
And the more fully we live it, not just as individuals, but as a people, we can lift each other, we can lift ourselves, we can lift our society to a place where God can remove that sword that guards the way of the tree of life and make accessible to us our immortality. He did it for the people of Enoch. And if we fail to be translated, does that mean we've failed to keep the covenant of Abraham and Sarah? No, God has his purposes and his timeline and his plan for each of us. But the fact that there are those who in history have found it tells us how powerful it is if we just live the gospel we've been given, if we just live the covenants we've been given. These temple ordinances, the holy priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, they can truly sanctify us and bring us to a knowledge of our Redeemer and to be more like our Redeemer. That's all I have for you today. I'm grateful for everyone who's listening. If you want to get in touch with me, please email gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Leave your name in town and I'll read your comment on the air. And please, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, help your friends find our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or by sharing one of our episode posts on Facebook. We'd like to reach the greatest number of people and help them enjoy the Sabbath day Sunday school lessons that we share. I pray that we'll all be able to do the works of Abraham and Sarah and receive the blessings of Abraham and Sarah. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt, with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.